0: You're listening to Retail Disrupted, a podcast that explores the latest industry developments and the trends that will shape how we shop in the future. I'm your host, Natalie Berg. Today, we're going to be talking about greedflation. This is the idea that some companies are exploiting the cost-of-living crisis in order to drive their own profits. And now, the supermarkets are in the firing line. Earlier this week, executives from Tesco, Sainsbury's, Asda, and Morrison's appeared before UK lawmakers who are alleging that the grocers are profiteering and acting as a cartel. Even the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, said this week that food prices have gone up far too much in recent months. And now the government wants to make sure that supermarkets are behaving responsibly and fairly when it comes to pricing. So how have the supermarkets responded to these claims? Naturally, they're vehemently rejecting them. They say UK grocery retail is incredibly competitive. In fact, Tesco's commercial director, Gordon Gaffa, told MPs, we are the most competitive we have ever been. And I'd agree with that. Everything the supermarkets do, they do it with a customer mind. They are far too aware of the consequences of not being competitive on price. They made that mistake already. (laughs) They made that mistake 10, 15 years ago and it paved the way for the discounters. Aldi and Little have grown and stolen market share over the past decade and now Aldi is the fourth largest supermarket, bigger than Morrison's. So if you're not doing your absolute best, particularly in the current climate, if you're not doing your absolute best to offer value right now, then you don't have much of a business. It is absolutely cutthroat. Shoppers are more price sensitive and less loyal than ever before. Now that doesn't mean that prices aren't a problem. They are. The latest data from the ONS shows that food price inflation is currently at around 18%. This is the highest level since the 1970s. And I think as shoppers, it's incredibly visible. We all notice these changes. In fact, I noticed recently that a large pack of fish fingers, which is very much a barometer for inflation in our household, no judgment, (laughs) A large pack of fish fingers, though, now costs almost eight pounds. Now, I'm sure it used to be about four pounds, maybe five, but definitely in that range. Sugar is up 50%. Cheddar cheese costs 40% more than it did last year. Eggs, 30% more. But to go back to the profiteering claim, I don't think you can just point your finger at the supermarkets and say that they're lining their pockets at the expense of the shopper. This is a complex situation. And let's not forget, there's been a lot of disruption over the past few years. It's volatile. We've had Brexit, then COVID, then the Ukraine war, all of which, for varying reasons, have contributed to food price inflation. The supermarkets have had to contend with their own cost inflation, energy, transport, labor, rent, higher manufacturer prices, higher commodity prices, For the grocers, the cost of doing business is considerably greater and far more volatile than it used to be. And of course, this is a sector with razor-thin margins. If you look at another category like clothing or electronics, you know, these are categories where you have nice, cushy margins that you can play around with if you need to. That's not the case in grocery. In grocery, we're talking low single digits. Very, very low (laughs) single digits. And of course, the last thing that any retailer wants to do is to pass any additional cost on to the customer. In my view, the supermarkets have actually done everything in their power to continue to offer value to customers in these trying times. They've expanded their economy private label ranges. They've invested in lower prices where they can. They're price matching the discounters. They're offering special discounts and lower prices to members of their loyalty schemes. That's relatively new. They're doing whatever they can to reduce their own costs. I mean, some are even dimming lights to reduce energy costs. That's where we are right now. So my take is no, the supermarkets aren't profiteering. They're balancing the need to remain competitive and serve the customer while still protecting their inherently small profit margins. So. If the government is wrong and supermarkets aren't responsible for skyrocketing inflation, well, then who is? To help us make sense of it all, Javier Dillon joins us on the podcast. Javier is an economist with the BRC, the British Retail Consortium, and I thought he'd be the perfect person to help us unpack what's going on. Javier, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Javier, I referenced the ONS data in my intro, but the BRC, of course, has its own shop price index, which is produced in collaboration with Nielsen IQ. Now, the index measures changes in the price of 500 of the most commonly bought items, which is especially relevant this week because I think it really shows the extent to which retailers are contributing to inflation. Now, you've just released the June data, so can you talk us through the main findings and most importantly, whether you think that inflation has finally peaked?
1: Yeah. So inflation has finally turned a corner. We did note that shop price inflation finally eased from roughly around 9% to 8.4%. Uh, and we saw easing across both food and non-food categories. So good news there. Food is is now coming down uh, from its peak. And we, we, uh, we anticipate that it will uh, start to ease from now up until the end of the year. Now, how fast that process is is going to be kind of um, at the whim of, of certain unknowns. So, commodity price volatility, the future inflation outlook, how quickly that inflation comes down is going to be at the whim of some factors that we still have some uncertainty around. But I think we can say with a good deal of confidence that inflation is largely on its way down.
0: Yeah, well, that's really promising news. And I think it is important to remind listeners who maybe aren't as well versed in all this that food prices themselves aren't declining. So we're not talking about deflation, but the rate at which prices are increasing is slowing. That's that's what's happening here. Now, you kind of already touched on your outlook, but I'm curious to know how, I, yeah, just, just to kind of to go back to this deceleration and in food inflation that you're predicting. We know that it's the lower income households that are disproportionately impacted by food price inflation because a larger share of their income goes to essentials like food. But I guess two questions. One is, do you think this is going to provide some much needed relief to lower income consumers? And then actually, you know what, we'll start with that question. And then, then we'll move on to the next one before I throw too much at you. <laughs>
1: So so yeah, I mean, a, a slowdown inflation will be welcomed by lower income consumers. But as you touched upon, whilst it's not deflation, i.e. falling prices, um, disinflation does mean that prices are at least stabilising. So in terms of budgeting and, and looking ahead into the future, uh, in one sense, that is helpful. Um, but yes, positive inflation still means that prices were higher than a year ago, uh, just less so. Uh, but what I would s- suggest is that Consumers have been remarkably resilient over the past year or so and you know, whether that's across income spectrums you know that higher income households have been able to weather the storm a bit better, but in aggregate retail spending has broadly held up fairly well, uh, despite the the active headwinds uh, currently in the economy.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that consumers have surprised us all with their resilience sure, they're being more cautious, they're being smarter in their spending and how they part with their hard-earned cash. And there are, for obvious reasons, signs that they are delaying this big ticket discretionary purchases. But the fact is, they're still spending. And I think this is going to be really interesting to watch as we move into the second half of the year, you know, the most critical time of year for retailers. Because I think consumers' ability to continue to spend is really going to be put to the test. We continue to see interest rate rises, which are putting a real dent in purchasing power. In fact, I read recently that nearly 1.5 million people with mortgages will see a 20% reduction in their disposable income. 20%! I mean, this is going to have huge implications for retail. So, yeah, I think there's a lot at play. But I guess just to touch on the overall inflation rate, because the overall inflation rate uh, obviously doesn't just include food, but all goods and the price of all goods and services. That is also stubbornly high at around nine percent. So not as high as food price inflation. But I'm curious to get your views. To what extent does food price inflation contribute to this overall inflation figure? And if, as you say, the rate at which food prices are rising continues to decelerate, will the overall inflation figure come down to, or are there perhaps other factors that are propping that figure up?
1: So, so yes, as you say, <clears throat> overall inflation uh, is still quite stubbornly high. Uh, in the BRC Nielsen IQ measure of shop price inflation, food contributes around 5% that headline uh, figure whereas non-food accounts for for a slightly uh, lower amount at three and a half percent but food price inflation i mean clearly it's in double digits whereas many of the non-food categories are still in single digits so it's occupying the bulk of the inflationary pressures if you will Uh, now the kind of good news story is that fresh food inflation does look like it's easing a lot more rapidly than non-non-fresh so many staple items you know bread flour milk butter these are items that we have recently begun to see price decreases in uh, price cuts in and this is reflected in just how much the fresh component has slowed down Uh, but we are still seeing some lingering inflationary pressures in ambient food products and these sorts of products tend to uh, have have a bit more of a manufacturing process behind them Uh, there are more inputs required so naturally the cost base uh, tends to tends to be a bit higher in, in those sorts of goods, and it's, it's, especially when you put that in the context of uh, a commodity such as sugar, which has been seeing exploding prices uh, over the past six months or so. You know, sugar is a base ingredient for for many many items, and so particularly items such as chocolates uh, might might be a a, a bit of a, a sad thing for, for myself, uh, <laughs> a bit of a, of a sweet tooth. Uh, you know, that is an item that's going to see more persistent inflationary pressures. So certainly some things are coming down faster, but other things are coming down a lot more slowly.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And and just to kind of explore that in a little bit more detail. I mean, one of the things that the supermarkets were grilled over this week is why shop prices haven't fallen in line with drops in the wholesale cost of ingredients, which is what you've sort of just touched on. And they use the example of wheat Uh, Going back to our friend Ken Murphy at Tesco, I mean, he said previously that they react pretty quickly when they see commodities coming down. But this week, we've heard from the supermarkets who have said uh, that it typically takes between anywhere between three to nine months for a reduction in wholesale costs to translate into lower prices at the shelf. So, in your view, does it really take that long? And do you think some retailers are maybe more agile than others, or some better at implementing those price? Uh, there's declines in wholesale costs and in translating those into lower prices at the shelf.
1: When we've looked at this, we find the strongest correlations of end consumer prices. So that is to say the prices that consumers face. Um, the strongest correlations are between eight and 18 months for global food prices. So, um, you know, food coming in from abroad. Mm. And then we, we have that range at three to nine months for producer prices, which is kind of a step further down Um, the supply chain. So that's all to say that it takes time for these costs to filter through down the supply chain at the various stages of production. And what's worth mentioning is that retail has very frequent price setting uh, in the sector. So it's one of the most agile sectors in in the whole economy. And this allows them to adapt to the market quite quickly. Competition mm. naturally fierce, so price growth has been evolving as cost bases continue to uh, increase. So one thing that's been surprising to the upside has been that the, the labour aspect of cost. Not only is it you know are there long lags to actually fill posts, the wage growth is also reaccelerating. So there appears to be a bit more kind of pressure in in the cost base still. Um, but what I would say is that price kits are coming. You know, we've we've already seen examples of this in certain staple goods that I've mentioned. And, you know, the big supermarkets are always going to want to seek to grow their market share and will snatch the opportunity when they can.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, there's been talk of a supermarket price cap on essential items to help combat inflation. And something similar is being introduced in France. The UK supermarkets have broadly rejected this idea, saying that it can have unintended consequences it might actually make the market less competitive, and actually, the mark the market is pretty good at self regulating. So, I'm curious to get your views. Would a supermarket price cap work? And if not, what else can be done to bring food prices down?
1: So, I had a long Twitter thread about this not too long ago, <laughs> and uh, to put the answer shortly, no, I don't think a, a price cap uh, would work. But a lot of the points I made were surrounding the price cap being unnecessary. So, mm. food inflation's already peaked. And the effect of a price cap would have been to force higher prices of certain goods. <clears throat> so certain goods, the staples, you would have you know, had to reduce their prices or keep them at a certain level. You know, that kind of price pressure would find itself in other goods uh, inevitably. And also it would prevent further price cuts of those essentials because retailers are incentivized to price to the cap rather than their own market equilibrium price. Interesting. So- this would put the government's target of halving inflation in a bit more jeopardy because, you know, if you've got, if, if those goods that, you know, you would naturally see price cuts in have sort of stickier price levels, then that's going to slow down the um, the, the disinflation that the government itself wants it, as its target. So, you know, and, and then another thing to kind of just add into the mix there is that prices did fall in May for many of the items that price caps did uh, that the, the price caps were considered for, so you know this does suggest that the controls were unnecessary to some de- to some degree. Those cuts were coming, and they are expected to continue as well.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So it could actually backfire if not done, uh, done if not done correctly. Now, final question for you, Javier. The BRC is calling on the government to halt the introduction of new policies that might hamper the progress we've seen in terms of grocery prices easing. Can you talk us through what specifically might hinder these efforts to combat inflation?
1: So, a big part of why the pass-through of costs is taking time and this touches on a question you raised earlier about the kind of 3 to 9 month lag, uh, a, a big part of why that pass-through is taking time is because the business base of costs has has swelled over the past past few years, you know, the the tax burden is certainly much higher than it was during the 2010s and you know following Brexit there's been an, an increase in barriers to trade so there are more kind of frictions just doing business is, um, you know th- there are more burdens in, in conducting in conducting that business so all of this is to say that you know this additional cost base the swelling cost base is preventing retail businesses from investing as much in price cutting measures as they you know maybe could have had their cost bases been lower you know and that's whether it's business rates uh packaging regulations uh, you know and a host host of other uh different regulations that you know are adding cost to, to retail businesses
0: fantastic well i think that just about wraps it up Javier. thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your insights it's been great to have you and enjoy the rest of your day thank you for listening to retail disrupted If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the podcast, please leave a rating or review or share it with others. It really makes a difference.